Good morning. We have three different passages to read today, so please turn in your Bibles uh, first to Genesis 3, 9 through 16. So this is Genesis 3, 9 through 16. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And now Matthew nineteen, eight through 12. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And now, 1 Corinthians eleven four through 5 Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go across for children's worship, uh, hold on, wait a second. We have a new process that we follow now, uh, and Miss Brittany's going to tell you what it is because she told me in staff meeting and I forgot. Where's Miss Brittany? She's not even here. So here, so I'm just going to make it up on the fly. Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to stand at the door, and the children are going to line up behind Mr. Jonathan. I think it was Miss Mary Francis there supposed to line up behind. So line up behind Miss Mary Francis. Let's wait until everybody gets here, Miss Mary Francis. Let us line up. The grown-ups have to learn the process, too. And Miss Brittany's going to go behind you. All right. We're getting ready for our new building. We've got some new processes we've got to put in place. We'll have it learned by the time the building is open. Well, if you're visiting here with us, I know we have a number of visitors. You caught us on... Uh, not an odd Sunday, but we are deep in a sermon series on the image of God. 
the first four Sundays of this nine, we said, what is this idea that humans are created in the image of God? So we took four weeks establishing a theological baseline, and now we're applying it to four critical issues of our day. Uh, I hear a ringing, Chris. I don't know if you need to tone me down a little bit. Uh, we, we've talked about how that relates to uh, worship, the importance of worshiping in person. Uh, what was the first one? Abor- we talked about abortion, how this uh, doctrine of the image of God applies to that issue and what it means for us and for the world. And now we're in week two of uh, gender. What does the image of God tell us about gender? And last week, we observed what Jesus and Paul taught and believed about gender. And for those of you who are here, where did they get their beliefs about gender? Anybody remember? Where did Paul and Jesus look? They went late. They went back to the beginning. They went back to the garden before sin ever entered the world. And that was where they got their norms and universals for gender and gender relations in the world. So we tried to follow their precedent. We went back to Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at how men and women both equally share in the image of God. But we also see uh, uh, the the way that men and women embody God's image uh, differently from each other. But that difference was intended to be one of reciprocity and complementing one another. The reason I hesitated was I realized that I have the wrong PowerPoint up. It's the one from last week. I thought, wait a second. So, Chris, you weren't the only person to mess something up this morning. Good, good. I actually did it intentionally just so you wouldn't feel like a sucker. All right. That's why I hesitate. So, the difference between men and women was supposed to be one of reciprocity and complementing one another. But there's a problem. What God created for partnership in his kingdom work has been all messed up by sin. So today we're going to look at the impact of sin on gender relations and on gender itself. And then we're going to look at how the gospel can help us restore some of those situations. And then last but not least, actually it might be it is least, we're going to look at what does that mean for our practice as a church and for how we should engage with our unbelieving neighbors when it comes to these conversations about gender. So let's begin with an assumption that you probably already had before you walked in, and it's this. Sin has complicated what God intended for good. There are some sermon notes if you like to fill in the blanks or take notes, but that's the first one. Sin has complicated what God intended for good. God, before sin had ever entered the world, said it is not good for man to be alone. So he made a helper fit for him, a helper who would enable him to serve God well. Together, they were made for the glory of God. But what God intended for good, sin has made a mess of it. Well, how has sin messed up this relationship between man and woman? Well, first, sin has sparked a power struggle between men and women. Sin has sparked a power struggle between men and and women. So after Adam and Eve ate from the tree, what did God tell them? If you want to flip back to Genesis 3, let's look at verses 9 through 13, and then we'll jump to verse 16. Verse 9, but the Lord Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We're going to jump down to verse 16. To the woman, the Lord said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. Some of your translations will say, contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I skipped what God said to the serpent and to the man, because what God says to Eve here explains problem number one in the relationship between men and women. There's a power struggle now. So where God created man and woman for mutuality and for complementary relationships that leads to the glory of God, it's gotten messed up. And the picture that God paints of this screw-up in verse 16 is this. The desire for the woman will be contrary to her husband, and he shall rule over her. To say that a different way, there will always be a tendency for a woman to want to dominate a man and for a man to respond with an iron fist. This is what has happened to what God created for mutuality, for love, and for intimacy. It has been pushed towards something very different. Genesis 3.16, when it's taken to its logical extension, describes radical feminism and male misogyny at war with each other. So these two ways of thinking about gender and acting, these are the inevitable extremes that will always arise in the post-fall world. God said it would happen in the third chapter of the book. But this power struggle happens in less extreme ways, even in Christian households, doesn't it? And it happens in Christian churches. It's not uncommon for women to want to supplant their husbands to diminish them behind their backs or even in front of their faces. And the number of women in evangelical churches who are abused and kept silent, that is one of evangelical, evangelicalism's most damnable sins. God will judge us for that kind of treatment of women. But this power struggle of women trying to dominate men and men trying to squash women, this power struggle is why Paul had to give the church in Corinth the directions we saw last week. And last week we saw that the women in that church were starting to act like men and the men were starting to act like women. There was not only gender confusion, there was a power game that was going on. But this power struggle between men and women, both in relationships and in a big macro sense, this isn't the only impact of sin on gender and gender relations. No, sin has also hurt our bodies. Sin has also hurt our bodies. Every one of us has bodily ailments and frailties because of sin. And for some, sin has complicated their biological sex and, by extension, their gender. So in the context of Jesus' discussion on divorce in Matthew 19, which we saw last week, Jesus makes a unique statement. So look to, to Matthew 19, verses 8 and following. Verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. 
But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus describes eunuchs, these men who do not marry. And they don't marry for one of three reasons. Some are made eunuchs by men. Some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And some are eunuchs from birth. What is this talking about? Well, those made eunuchs by men is likely a reference uh, to the ancient practice of how kings would actually castrate some of their key male servants. That's not something that Jesus would promote or be a big fan of, but it was something that just happened in his day. Now, those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God are people like Jesus and Paul. They weren't physically castrated, but they chose singleness over marriage so that they could devote themselves 110% to the work of the kingdom of God. But who is this third group? People who are eunuchs by birth. Most interpreters, myself included, believes that this refers to people who, because of the impact of sin on the world and on biology, are born hermaphroditic. According to the National Institutes of Health, uh, this is a very uncommon circumstance. This doesn't happen a lot. This affects like two out of every 10,000 people. That might not sound like a lot of people, two out of 10,000, but that means that out of all the people in St. Tammany Parish, on average, there's 52 of these folks that live here in our backyard. That's a significant number of people who are impacted, their bodies were impacted by sin in a way that makes their life really hard. Now, there are other chromosomal abnormalities that also classify as intersex, but the point is that something has gone awry when this person was being developed in their mother's womb, and that's not how God created men and women. It's a confusion introduced by the fall. So this group of people, intersex folks, these are people who are made in the image of God, who need love and support as they are in a very rare and difficult situation that they didn't ask for. And these kinds of chromosomal abnormalities are usually associated with other disabilities as well. And in my opinion, one major reason that I find the current transgender movement in the West so offensive is that it overshadows the plight of these people who are dealing with a physical difficulty such as this. Jesus noticed these people. He recognized the situation that they were in, and it calls us to compassion. So from Jesus' vantage point, and he's our creator, gender is tied to our biology. And when our biology is broken by sin, well, it's a situation worthy of compassion and support. So sin has messed up a lot. It's messed up things between men and women. It's introduced this kind of power struggle. But even in some people's bodies, it's caused confusion and pain. But sin is not the end of the story. No, the restoring work of the gospel invites us back to Eden while also pointing our eyes toward eternity. So the restoring work of the gospel invites us back to Eden while also pointing our eyes to eternity. So in the New Testament last week, we saw these rules and directions about looking to the garden for how we relate to one another as men and women. We were encouraged by Jesus and Paul to embody the gender roles that Adam and Eve lived out there in the garden. But those gender roles are tied to this life only. 
in the resurrection and in heaven, gender will not work the same way. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said this, In the resurrection, humans neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So also in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What are Paul and Jesus saying? Spiritually speaking, we are all the same. Men and women are image bearers. There's nothing, to use a philosophical word, there's nothing ontologically different about us. Biologically, we're different. Vocationally, we are different. God has made us different, and we're called to different roles in the home and in the church. But spiritually and in our, our essence, men and women are both equally image bearers of God. We are all sinners, and in Christ, we are on equal footing before God. So it's this interesting tension between the garden and eternity. And the way the New Testament directs us is this. While we are still in this life, in these created biological bodies... We're called to live as God created us, as man and woman. We look back to the garden where we were first created, and we aim to live out our maleness and our femaleness in a way that reflects that. But one day when we're resurrected, the same strictures will not exist. Will we be male and female in heaven and in the resurrection? I don't know. The Scripture doesn't say clearly. It says we'll be like the angels. And it says that we won't relate to each other in the same way, romantically, maritally, or in terms of headship. We step into sort of an equalitarian world in eternity. So the gospel calls us to look back to the garden to figure out how men and women are supposed to interact and live in this life. But in eternity, it's not going to be the same way. So what does this teach us? Well, our eternal state calls us to mutual humility and honor toward any Christian, regardless of gender. I should treat every Christian with remarkable humility and honor. Last week, somebody accused me of inhabiting a strange middle ground on this topic of gender. Uh, I gladly accept that compliment. Because in Ephesians, right before the passage, it seems so controversial where it tells wives to submit to their husbands. Do you know what the verse before it says? Here it is. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Before it ever tells wives to submit to their husbands, it says Christians, submit to one another across the board. Once again, we see the strange tension in Paul where he's looking back to the garden, but he's also looking forward to eternity. And that tension calls him to say, submit to each other. Well, how do we do that in our marriages if there's a power struggle going on? How do we do that in our home if a husband is trying to keep his thumb on his wife And his wife is using whatever tactics, words, to overcome him and to be in charge. 
How does the gospel address that? First of all, it calls you men and you women to kneel before the cross of Christ, knowing that your sins have offended a holy God and that you are undone before him, that you have nothing, no ground to stand upon but Christ. And from that springs a humility that says, I must be daily repenting, daily stripping down my pride for the glory of Christ because I am nothing without him. And then I look at my wife, I look at my husband, and I realize they're the exact same. They're nothing without Christ. And so what I have to do is extend to them the same grace and patience that Christ has extended to me. We look forward and we think about who are we going to be in eternity? Who are we now and what has God called us to be? And we submit to one another. But doesn't it seem like Paul's talking out both sides of his mouth again? Which is it, Paul? Are wives supposed to submit to their husbands as to the Lord? Or are we supposed to submit to one another mutually? Paul would say, yes. Look back to the garden, but also look to eternity. Take seriously that we are still in this Genesis creation. We still have the bodies that God gave us, and we're called to live according to those norms and universals. But let's not get full of ourselves here. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's remember that in eternity, we're going to be on equal footing in every possible way, and let's treat each other with that kind of respect. This is actually the argument, uh, the, the biblical argument, for inclusion of women at every level of church leadership. I think that there is a cogent argument to be made that as citizens of God's kingdom, there's neither male nor female, and so women can fill any role in church leadership. I disagree with that. Uh, I, I think Paul's really clear in restricting roles of authority in the home and in church to men based upon creation, and I want to align myself with what Paul says very forthrightly. But I don't lose sleep over St. Timothy's in Mandeville having women pastors. I don't lose sleep over New Covenant in Mandeville having female elders. I still think those are good churches. I just think their viewpoint is, is actually an over-realized eschatology. They're looking forward into the future, how things are going to be in eternity, and they're, they're bringing it closer to us than, than we should. So now, that's St. Timothy's and that's New Covenant. There are some churches that say, ah, Paul's a chauvinist, he hates women, let's just throw that. Well, that's not a good faith effort of interpreting the scriptures, right? So there is some distinction there. So here we are, living in this strange era between the garden and eternity. And to complicate it, we live after the resurrection of Jesus. So we are already experiencing eternal life now, but not yet in its fullness. So concerning our gender... We know where we came from. We know where we're headed. We know how to live now. But let's apply these ideas first to our church and then uh, to our relationships with unbelievers. Oh, I got ahead of myself. I don't want to give it to you all just yet. So as a congregation who has very traditional views of gender, biologically and vocationally, so for those of you who are visiting, we don't currently have women, we don't allow for women pastors in our presbytery. That's our regional governance our church doesn't have female elders or deacons. So that's kind of where we are organizationally. What special pitfalls do we need to be aware of? It'd be really easy to pick on the churches that are not like us. Let's pick on ourselves. 
what are the special pitfalls that we need to be aware of? You know, every church has its blind spots, and our blind spots are going to be different from good churches that have women in leadership from top to bottom. But let's talk about us, not them. What might our blind spots be? First, we need to remember that the unbelieving world tends not only toward equalitarianism and radical feminism, but also toward misogyny. Lots of unbelievers are misogynistic, too. So there's a tendency to think that the world is always the opposite of us. We believe that God has reserved roles of authority in the home and in the church for men only. The assumption that we can make, then, is that the unbelieving world is the opposite of that. They're either radically equalitarian or that all ro- uh, where all roles in all spheres should be open to men and women, or, and I, I think this is actually more true, we assume that the world prefers women to be in authority over men. But let's not forget that there are plenty in the unbelieving world who hate women. They have taken Genesis 3.16 on as their mantra that men shall rule over women. Now, why do I point that out? Well, Christians like us who have a traditional view of gender and authority, men and women alike, y'all probably aren't tempted to be radical feminists. That's just not something I really worry about that much with our congregation. The tendency in churches like ours is actually toward misogyny. So-called Christians... Uh, go on the internet. Actually, don't do this. But if you go on like alt-right websites, you really dig into Reddit and Twitter and places like that, the alt-right who hates women and talks terribly about them is full of people that profess to be Christians. They, they, They say they praise Jesus and then they diminish women. And when you do that, it's an attack on God. Because women, like men, are images of God. They are a reflection of their creator. And so to diminish and devalue women is to diminish and devalue a reflector of the glory of God. An attack on a woman is an attack on God himself. Satan loves to take a truth and turn it into a half-truth. So don't let him do that with the biblical teachings on gender. Don't start to buy the misogynistic internet press that praises men and denigrates women. The New Testament Though it agrees with a traditional view of gender from the garden, it refocuses our eyes on eternity, which is equalitarian. So if we should lean one way or another between misogyny and equalitarianism, it should be always toward equalitarianism because that is where we're headed. Here's another application that would be wise for a church in our position to be mindful of. We need to be careful not to put unqualified men in positions of church authority because of their gender. Being a man doesn't qualify you to be an elder or a deacon. Uh, Sorry. The the, the scriptures have really clear uh, qualifications about the kinds of men who should be chosen as elders and deacons so you don't get a pass just because you're a dude. So let's be mindful of the, the requirements for each of those offices. Also, we need to be careful to listen to the voices of women who have been abused. Genesis 3.16 is our warning that there will always be a tendency in this broken world for women to be abused by domineering men. And the recent history of the evangelical church has just seemed to be oblivious to that. Women are regularly not heard. They are set aside and ignored in supposedly Christian congregations. May it never be true of us. The same principle applies to children who are abused as well. 
Men in the church don't get a pass because they're men. In fact, if they're officers of the church, they should be held to an even higher standard, according to Paul. Third, we need to be careful not to exclude women from the roles that they should be playing at FPC. So this is one uh, of the things. So I, I grew up, I told you last week, I grew up in a, in a church culture that was even more traditional, even more conservative than uh, our church. And one thing that has consi- consistently confused me is how people treat this text in 1 Corinthians 11. So flip over there real quick. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 and 5. It says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, and if you wonder about the head covering stuff, I talked about that a little bit last week. You can go back and listen to that online. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, who's Christ. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. The debate that I've always heard from this text is about whether women need to wear head coverings in church, whether long hair is required, or whether guys can wear hats in church. I don't think, think those are dumb questions. I think those are actually good interpretive questions that are worth considering. But there's a bigger elephant in the room. Paul says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, namely her husband. Paul makes this wild assumption that women are praying and prophesying in church gatherings. And that wasn't his problem. His problem wasn't the praying and the prophesying. The problem was that there was no gender distinction that demonstrated authority while the women were praying and prophesying. So what I'd like to see in our church and in other conservative evangelical churches is more attention paid to the active part of that. Women should be praying and prophesying in some kind of mixed group. So how do we encourage and cultivate that? How do we get women back into leadership and ministry in a way that doesn't violate what Scripture also teaches about authority? Because as we said last week, men can't do the work of the kingdom alone. They needed a helper. Now, you may already feel uncomfortable, especially if this is your first week. Sorry, guys. Uh, But I'm going to pick a scab now. So if that wasn't a scab already, I'm just going to dig a little bit deeper. If you've been around here for long, you can know that I'm a vocal proponent of women's participation in the Board of Deacons. And about once a year, I bring it up with the congregation in some kind of setting. I bring it up with the session, and I begin to lobby for it once more. I think this is my first time to do it from the pulpit. I see no biblical reason why women should not be participating in and with that body. We can debate the details, whether they are considered deacons or deaconesses or deacons' assistants or whether it's just the deacons' wives that are participating with them. But 1 Timothy 3 and 1,600 years of church history both argue convincingly to me that women should be involved in that ministry. And yes, that is a topic of conversation currently with our session. Beyond that issue, I think it would be wise for FPC and its session to chew on these texts we've reviewed today about the role that women should have in prayer and prophecy in the church. I don't believe either of those is an authoritative action. And frankly, I don't fully have my view all sorted out on the prophetic speech parts. I don't have some kind of agenda on that that I'm not saying. I just, I don't have it totally sorted out yet. But this is an area where Paul saw women rightly participating with their heads covered with some kind of distinction of authority and gender. So what does that mean for our congregation? I think that's something we need to chew on a little bit more. But in closing, let me address one final question about our neighbors. 
So as people who want to be engaged with the world, as engaged neighbors, how do we interact with the world about this confusing issue of gender and gender relations? Well, in between the garden and eternity, we want to engage our neighbors with grace and truth. When John chapter 1 described Jesus' life on earth, that's the language that John used to describe his life. He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory the glory that you reflect, image bearer, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have to have both of these things, grace and truth. So as image bearers, we are called to live and love like Jesus. That was a part of why God created us. So I want to engage the world like Jesus would, and that means grace and truth. So here are three broad takeaways to help you ford these difficult waters. First, Recognize the brokenness that Scripture addresses concerning gender and sexuality. Sin has just made a mess of everything. And as we saw today, Scripture speaks pretty plainly about that. The Bible's realistic about what sin has done to relationships and what it's done to people's bodies. And what that means is I can't gawk in astonishment at the world if I'm reading the Scriptures. I can't be shocked. I can be sad about the state of the world. I can disagree with the viewpoints of people in the world. I can pray and hope for a better experience for my loved ones in the world. But the Bible's really clear that sin has messed things up. And people who don't know God are accustomed to things being messed up. In fact, they think that's the norm. Their bodies, their identities, and their relationship. So we shouldn't be shocked when people say the things that we hear on the news and online and in conversations. We should be grieved, not shocked. So let the Scripture set your expectations of what you're going to see in the world. The world's pretty messed up. Second, we need to recognize how deeply sin has broken us all. So when I'm engaged with an unbeliever having a conversation about gender and sexuality, I'm dealing with a sinful, broken person. You know what? Me too. I'm sinful and broken as well. The only reason that I give a hoot about what the Bible says about gender is because God has done something in my life. I've experienced the grace of God. So I have to be open to share grace with my unbelieving neighbors, often in ways that make me uncomfortable. Stated another way, I have to let unbelievers be unbelievers. They don't believe Christ. They don't believe the Word. Why would I expect them to do Otherwise, Now, if somebody professes to follow Christ, that's a whole different ballgame. We hold them to a different standard. We challenge them and we press them with the truth of Scripture. But with my next-door neighbor, I don't actually want to change their views on gender. That's not my primary focus and goal. I want them to know Jesus. As I've said before, Jesus cleans his fish after he catches them. So I view every other person as broken and sinful like I am, and I want them to know Christ most of all. So that may mean I have to endure some weirdness or some awkwardness or some discomfort because I want to get them to Jesus more than I want to get them to some certain view of gender. And then lastly, and this is really the hard one, learn how to maintain your conscience while demonstrating real grace to your neighbors with your presence, your listening ear, and your patient words of truth. Learn how to maintain your conscience while demonstrating real grace with your presence, your listening ear, 
and your patient words of truth. So this is the hard balance we have to strike. I think the question of pronoun usage in the workplace is an interesting case study. I'm not going to really dig into right now. We could talk more offline. But I agree with Luther, Martin Luther, that to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So if you think something is wrong, don't do it. Um, You don't want to compromise your conscience. And what one person can handle, another person can't, and that's okay. But at the same time, you want to have relationships with the people who are close to you at work and in your neighborhood and in your family. You want to love them with your presence to be able to talk to them. Why? So you can speak truth to them. So you can tell them of Jesus' love, the truth of the gospel. So let me share a story from my own life, and you can do with it what you will. Um, about 15 years ago, uh, <laughs> I, was a, I was a young pastor. I was, how long? 13, I think it was 13 years ago. I was a pastor in Texas. wasn't here. And um, a church member's husband, who was not a member of our church, reached out to me, of course, when the lead pastor was on vacation. I was, uh, or he was on sabbatical. So I was solo pastor for the first time in my life. This is my first week as a solo pastor. I get a call from a, a church member's husband, and he calls me, and he comes out to me, and he says, well, I've been living a lie. Even though my body tells me I'm a man, deep inside I know that I'm actually a woman. Well, the whole transgender thing wasn't like a headline yet. This was, I, I didn't know what it, I was shocked. I didn't know what to do. And he, he said, I want to introduce my alter ego to, to, to you and, and Meg. Could you come to lunch in three days? I said, sure. Yeah, cool. Great. And got off the phone, and I started calling pastors who had white hair uh, because I did not have any at that time. I'm a little bit now. And uh, what do I do? And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I read the scriptures. I didn't know what to do or what to say. So after three days, the day came. My wife and I, we went to their home. He answers the door, addresses a, a lady, and um, introduces his, his new name to us. And we walked in and sat down at the kitchen table. And I said, listen, before this starts, I want to make one thing clear. Your name and your pronouns don't define you. What defines you is your relationship to God. And so because I'm your friend and I've known you for a long time, I'll call you whatever you want to be called. That's no skin off my back. What I want to know is what is God doing in your life and what's your relationship to Jesus? Well, he then began to pour out his life story to me, and it was a story of abuse, depression, pain, suicide attempts. It was very, very sad. It was a broken man. And as we had lunch, we finally got to the end of the conversation, and he said, well, what's my relationship to Hope Church now? I said, well, you're not a member of our church, so your relationship is the same. You're welcome to come hear the gospel preached. You're welcome to come worship God. I said, but I, I would want to caution you against taking communion. He said, why? I said, well, the communion table is for repenting people, a people who seek to live according to the word of God and the ways of Jesus, and, and what you're living right now is not God's best for you. And I would encourage you not to take communion because I don't believe you're living a lifestyle of repentance. Lunch ended uh, abruptly, and uh, it wasn't very pleasant. If I could go back and have that lunch again, would I do anything different? I got some more experience and knowledge now than I had then. I don't, I'll leave it up to you whether I've got any more wisdom. I'm happy with how the conversation went. I was able to sleep that night 
I felt like I hadn't compromised either my love for him or my understanding of the scriptures. I put myself, it was so uncomfortable, guys. I put myself in an uncomfortable position to show love. And love, real love, is always laced with truth. There's no quick answer for how to deal with these issues. We have to discern in our own circumstances how to embody the grace and truth of Jesus. But to be an image bearer, which you are, is to live and love like Jesus. The other part of it is making the earth more like heaven. So that means there's teeth to this love. But in the end, being an image bearer means embodying self-sacrificial love, the love of Christ, to our neighbors, which always means discomfort to ourselves. These interactions probably won't be super pleasant for you, and that's never what we were promised by Jesus. He said to follow means to take up your cross and to die. So in between the garden and eternity, we engage our neighbors with grace and in truth, and in so doing, we hope to shine with the illuminating glory of Christ into a confused and hurting world that desperately needs his grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, um, these are hard issues, and they're made hard because they're close to us. These are our family. These are our friends, folks who are struggling with these deep issues that they didn't ask for, and we didn't either. Father, these things are also hard because it's happening in our marriages. We have husbands here who seek to dominate their wives. We have women here who seek to disrespect and dishonor their husbands because we have flesh. So, Holy Spirit, I want to ask that you would come now and that you would empower us to view ourselves and others through the lens of the garden and eternity. Help us to remember that our only hope is Christ and him crucified. And in light of that, may it humble us in how we care for one another, both Christians and unbelievers. Lord, if any of us need to repent and how we've addressed these issues, give us the boldness to do that. If we need to confess sin to our husbands, our wives, our neighbors, give us the courage to do that. But Holy Spirit, we pray that by the power of your gospel, you would knit our marriages together and that you would make us a beaming, bright light of Christ's grace and truth to a broken world. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.